Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Juliet Blunt for Elite Learning. In our series on implicit bias in healthcare, we heard from Dr. Benjamin D. Reese, Jr., a clinical psychologist who has explored issues of race, diversity, and implicit bias for more than 50 years. Dr. Reese was formerly the Vice President for Institutional Equity and Chief Diversity Officer for Duke University and the Duke University Health System. He is currently the President and CEO of Ben Reese LLC, a company that works with organizations around the globe to understand issues of diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism. In our podcast, Dr. Reese helped us as healthcare professionals identify and understand the concept of implicit or unconscious bias. He walked us through examples of implicit bias among healthcare providers and discussed its effect on patients. He helped us recognize ways to increase our awareness of our innate biases and learn evidence-based strategies to overcome them. Dr. Reese returned to answer questions posed by healthcare professionals. His answers to those questions are candid and enlightening. Our first question involved the difference between implicit and explicit biases. Dr. Reese was asked, if implicit bias is unconscious, how can someone identify it? And if implicit bias is recognized and we overcompensate for it, does that overcompensation amount to explicit bias? Yeah, well, overcompensating, um, yeah, that that can be an issue. You know, self-reflection as common sense as that may seem, getting in the habit of self-reflection, particularly in interactions where your life experience has told you that that's a sensitive area, that kind of self-reflection can be be helpful. Because you might recognize that um, you're overcompensating. Personal example, in recognizing what I feel is a racial implicit bias, I try to also factor into my assessment the possibility that being a black man, I might be overcompensating. And seeing implicit bias related to race when it is 20% of a situation and really feeling that it's 80 or 90. So that's self-reflection. Give you a very recent example. So I've been muting myself so you wouldn't hear the workmen in my house. So most of the workmen who've been doing some work in my house are uh, Latinx. And so yesterday I was going out and, you know, I was gonna leave the workmen to to work for the hour I was out of the house. I recognized that 
when I was thinking about whether I would do that, I was thinking about the cultural background. And so I stopped myself. And, you know, it's, as I often do, um, uh, thinking about the reverse. Would I be stopping myself and having these kind of thoughts if the workmen were white? And for me personally, I think I probably wouldn't or wouldn't have it to the extent that I was having these thoughts popping into my head of leaving this Latino man in my house as I went out for an hour. And so I, you know, I stopped myself and reflected on that cognition. And I went out for an hour and came back and it was fine. But boy, I recognize that um, that's a potential area for me of sensitivity. For someone else, it might be something different. Um, I know that one of the areas of potential unconscious bias for me, in spite of winning some awards, is ability and disability. And so my business card, and it's been this way for years, my business card is in Braille. Not only for people who I might give my card to, but as a reminder for me, every time I hand the card, that that's an area of potential bias. Um, I mean, I, I sometimes recognize a bit of anxiety when I'm making a presentation and I see one or more people um, in a wheelchair or as happened recently, someone who I, I, I think was blind. And the anxiety is, well, um, will I say something or should I say something? What's the appropriate way of responding to someone I was doing? Uh, I was in Australia a few years ago and I was doing an exercise with a group of people and they were getting up and they were wandering around and I had these um, sticky things on their foreheads of different colors, a whole interesting exercise. And there was someone in there who was blind. And here I had these stickies, things of different colors. Well, the kind of anxiety I had, because I know from some life experiences, that's an area of potential bias. So the process is unconscious, but I've become sensitive to that particular type of unconscious bias so that I hope when it occurs, the light bulb goes off so I can reflect on my behavior as I do that interaction. I know that in spite of being black and, you know, doing this work, that there are situations with particularly Latino men where I can have these things rolling around in my head um, about safety, security, trustworthiness, et cetera, that is a bias that I wouldn't have to that extent if the person is white or even black. So the process is unconscious, but self-awareness, self-reflection can help focus you on areas that you've come to see as potential blind spots. One of the books I would recommend is called Blind Spots. So that's something, a book you can hopefully Google. 
Healthcare providers are certainly not alone in harboring implicit biases. Patients unconsciously carry biases too. This next question addressed when healthcare providers find themselves on the receiving end of patients' implicit biases. A healthcare professional asked, what would be a good response if you experience implicit bias? When you're in a position of authority of power, part of what comes with that is a different set of responsibilities than being in the less powerful positions. So I generally, as a general rule, don't try to correct patients' psychological, cognitive set or stance, if you will. I will most often, and there are exceptions, uh, not respond and correct a patient uh, unless the context is, is one of psychotherapy. But as a physician, um, I wouldn't be in the habit of trying to modify someone's uh, bias about race or gender when they're coming in for a, a kidney issue or a heart cardiac issue and you know and that's uh, that's the position that I take recognizing that when I'm in the role of a provider I'm in a powerful position and this person coming isn't coming to um, have me as a provider modify their beliefs conscious or unconscious uh, about race but, you know, but I, I must say, and, and, you know, certainly there's been literature about that, particularly in recent years, about providers who've experienced racism. And so there have been some hospitals and healthcare systems that have kind of increased the support workshops that they have for providers. I'm into um, a year and a half of co-leading a support group for providers. Um, and it's for uh, things that they experience in the consultation room. It's things that they experience uh, in the healthcare system more generally, and then things that they've experienced in their life. And it's a year and a half, almost a year and a half because it was started shortly after the, the, the murder of George Floyd. And so getting uh, support in a system can be one way of responding to the biases that are directed towards you. Another question similarly asked, how do you handle situations in which, as a healthcare professional, you observe a coworker showing signs of implicit bias? Dr. Reese responded, I guess to working to create an environment in an organization where people are comfortable and it's normative to give feedback. And to the extent that you can, and it's on the continuum, create an environment that is more open to that and it's more normative, then I think giving feedback to colleagues um, is usually received in a positive way. And I, and I think that's important, you know, just as 
you know, being a bystander in um, in observing sexual harassment and all all the literature about bystanders standards standards needing to give feedback to the perpetrator and supporting the the victim. I think if you're observing an interaction that you think is an example of uh, unconscious bias, giving that person feedback, that colleague feedback, I think is important. And again, the extent to which you can create an environment where that's normative, that's helpful. Creating that normative environment involves organizations as well as individuals. Dr. Reese was asked about implicit bias and organizational culture. Well, you know, in spite of the fact that I focus so much on our individual assessments, our individual cognitions, in addition to that, thinking and working systemically and structurally in an organization is important. So I think to the extent that an organization and leadership is important, can begin to talk about implicit bias as being important, as not meaning that you're sexist or racist, the more that that can become culturally okay to talk about this. Like, then it's easier for someone to that and not feel offended by underlying the the word and concept of respectful feedback. Because, you know, I can recall someone saying to me, well, Dr. Reese, you know, what you just said might be viewed as being sexist. And, you know, my immediate reaction in my head was, you know, I've been doing this for 50 years. My wife thinks that I'm sensitive. My daughter thinks that I'm sensitive. But I stopped myself and try to reflect on the feedback I was getting and thinking about what I said. And so I, I think the extent to which an organization can make it normative to think about one's own potential for implicit bias, then it tends to make individual feedback, um, tends to make it easier to be received in a constructive way. During the podcast, Dr. Reese discussed examples from his own experience on ways to recognize and overcome implicit bias. Here he was asked to discuss in further detail how, in a group workshop setting, he singled out words that prompted reminders of what the group participants had learned about implicit bias. So um, the five words were the words that that particular group found to be helpful to recall. So what I would recommend if you wanted to try this strategy is at the end of a workshop that one of you might do, hand out a piece of paper with a dozen, 15 words that you've used, concepts that you've used, and then ask people in the group to circle three. Collect all the papers, do a frequency analysis, and see for that particular group what might be the words that would stimulate recall of the workshop. And it might vary from group to group. You might have a discussion in one workshop where you spend a lot of time on 
weight bias. And so for that particular group, something related to weight might stimulate recall. That let me mention a kind of uh, interesting caveat. So um, in this particular workshop with physicians who were um, screening applicants at School of Medicine, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about weight and weight bias, which is one of the areas of implicit bias that has been increasing in recent years. And so when I asked people to circle three things and I collected the papers, overweight was one of the words that a lot of people circled. And so I made this kind of executive decision to not put it on the poster. Finally, reflecting on how implicit biases develop early in our lives, Dr. Reese was asked to detail research that has explored the development of unconscious bias, or lack of it, in children who have grown up in multiracial, multi-ethnic, or diversely religious backgrounds. Once again, Dr. Reese. Hey, at Duke University, I have a wonderful colleague, Dr. Sarah Gaither, G-A-I-T-H-E-R. And Sarah is biracial one parent black, one parent white. Sarah, to most people, looks white. Her research has been on biracial children. And so I would suggest that people, um, you know, Google her work and read some of her articles. So um, biracial people, you know, it's complex, like all of the these factors. So it depends upon the kinds of experiences that a child has had, uh, the ways in which parents and other figures have talked about their biracial identity. Certainly depends upon the kinds of uh, situations they've been involved in. If they've been in a school where many children are biracial uh, and race and biracial identity is talked about, that's different from being the only child in a school and getting stigmatizing comments. And that, that's one comment I would make. But I, I think Dr. Gaither says that in general, I wanna and, and emphasize in general, this certainly isn't true for everyone. Children who are biracial tend to have greater facility in talking about race, uh, interacting with uh, a wider variety of people. You know, Sarah did some research early on and she's followed up with more specific research. But this early research looked at a group of college students who for a semester were living in a dorm with students of the same race. And then a matched pair of students who were living in a dorm in a room with a roommate of a different race. End of the semester, they both came into, both groups came into the lab individually. They sat down with someone who was really part of the experiment. We engaged them in a conversation about race, a conversation that sort of required them to say words, talk openly about race, about whiteness, blackness, et cetera. And they were videotaped and they took surveys. And what she found was, those students who had lived for a semester in the dorm with someone of a different race 
clearly were more comfortable talking about race using words and talking about blackness and whiteness. Uh, the video of their nonverbal behavior, people who were rating the videos rated them as being more comfortable non-verbally in talking about race. And the opposite was the case with students who live for a semester with other students of uh, the same race. And so she insinuates from that, that it appears, it appears that having biracial experiences, being biracial, seems to be uh, both a plus. But I, I say seems to be because there are lots of caveats. It depends upon um, the student that, for example, you're living with. Depends upon the, the larger context of the school. She doesn't know how long that, quote, advantage lasts after the one semester. She's done research to see to what extent this may be true for a living with students of a different gender, a different sexual orientation, et cetera. That's a long way of saying that there appears to be a quote plus in biracial, being biracial and navigating complex, diverse environments. But I mean, there's a, a lot of caveats and a lot of research that needs to be done. Research will continue to explore the origins and impact of implicit bias in healthcare. It is important for us to learn all that we can about biases and how to overcome them to provide the best possible experience for our patients. We hope you've enjoyed learning from Dr. Reese and that you'll further your education on this topic by following Elite Learning's in-depth continuing education experiences. Thank you for listening. This is Juliet Blunt for Elite Learning. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.